Catherine Latimer of the John Howard Society of Canada, and I'm joined by my co-host Lawrence De Silva, an ex-federal prisoner who spent more than 19 years in federal custody. We are bringing you a series of podcasts titled Voices Inside and Out, in which former prisoners and others share their stories about prison life and returning to communities. Today, we're very pleased to be joined by Joseph Lawrence, who's going to continue to tell us some interesting stories about his reintegration. And we've heard a lot about his housing um, challenges and how that was resolved. And hopefully today we'll hear more about the employment challenges and how he's moved to resolve some of those. Uh, Joseph, thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Yes, sir. Good morning. Thank you. Joseph, would you mind telling us a little bit about uh, what it was like trying to find work after you came out of prison? Oh, sure. Uh, When I got out, my goal was to be completely honest with people because I said, you know, I have a past now of criminal record. But I wanted to be going forward to be someone that, that no one could call me a liar. So every cover letter I wrote, I, was, I gave full disclosure of who I was. And, you know, I, you know, I remember focusing, pouring my guts out into them, you know, being completely honest. And I sent out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and did, did not receive any favorable responses. Some people responded out of curiosity, and then, but it never led anywhere. And uh, I was confronted by the reality that uh, because of my usual last name and how widely publicized my, my offense was, literally around the world. It was in Canada, Wall Street Journal in the U.S., the Economist in Europe, et cetera, that being completely honest would be very difficult to get a job unless someone was, was inclined to hire an ex-offender. So, but again, I, I pursued that. I still continue being completely honest. I never went off that path. So I didn't want anyone to say, hey, you're an ex-con and a liar. So you can say I'm an ex-con because I can't change the past. But mm-hmm. I didn't want anyone to ever say, hey, you're also a liar. Were you looking for work in the same sort of field uh, that you were in that was connected with the offense? No, because uh, a part of my, my deal, which was a global settlement with the United States and Canada, was that I couldn't uh, work in the investment field at all. So I knew that was out. I was a corporate lawyer at the time. So I, what I was doing, I was trying to pl- apply for jobs that were below my level of education or ability. So I would apply for an executive assistant or administrative <laughs> assistant. I wasn't shooting for the moon. I just wanted some stable income, a job that could provide that. And again, no matter how low I went, either they'd ask for, you know, they'd do a criminal background check on me if I got to that stage, or they would just Google me and dismiss me out of hand. I had one particular job where we had a phone interview. I guess they hadn't Googled me yet. And it went very well. They said, okay, for sure, you know, we, we love you. You're going to meet someone tomorrow at the office. And then a few minutes later, they called me back. And I saw the phone call come, coming back 10 minutes later on my, on my phone. I go, I knew it. Someone must have just Googled me. And, of course, they canceled the interview, and, and I never heard from them again yeah, after that, geez. which was very common. Did you lose your license to practice law as well as part of the- Yes, that was, that was part of my settlement. Uh, again, uh, I knew I needed to be punished, quote-unquote. So I, didn't, I, didn't, uh, I helped the law society with their investigation. And at the end, uh, I didn't uh, attend the final decision, and the final decision was to uh, take away my law license, among, among some other small things, yes. Well, obviously, you have a big skill set, right? If you had a law degree and you were an investment broker, you know a lot about a lot of things. And, and I know about prison, too. So it's a very wide skill set. <laughs> yeah, so it just, you just need a just, job that covers both things. Yeah, yeah, yeah you really do. And then it just uh, it can it can be a full platter right there. <laughs> yes, it can. Yeah. yes, it can. And so even when you were shooting for things that were 
you know, executive assistance or paralegal work or whatever that didn't require a full law license. It just nothing. Nobody, nobody bid, eh? No one bid. Sometimes, uh, well, let's say a person in a, at a firm would give me an opportunity, and then later on they'd say, "I've spoken to my other partners at this firm, and you know, one person objected to having an ex-offender on on even working on the same floor, and that would be the end of it." So it was, it was so common. And initially, I remember getting super depressed because it happened over and over again. But it happened so many times that I just I would almost approach it with, "It's gonna it's gonna blow up sooner or later before it starts." So even if someone was favorable down the road, I just I assumed at this point because it happens literally so many times that I, I was never getting my hopes up too high anymore anymore at that point. Did you have some hope that getting your um, criminal record pardoned or suspended would have would have eased the burden? Uh, yes, that's true. Uh, I remember I, I was looking forward to the date because at that time it was five years from your, your, your warrant expiry. Mm-hmm. And then they changed a lot of 10 years. So I was getting close to the five and then now, now it's 10. So I think that's sometime in 2022 for myself. And I will pursue it. At that point, initially, I remember thinking, why should I pursue it? But if it's there, I'm going to pursue it. I've done everything I can to reintegrate in society, be, try to be a positive member of society. Yes. So if that's what that's offered to me, I'd be foolish not to at least try. Most now, I'm not, expecting, I'm, I'm not expecting, I'm always, you know, very pessimistic that it might not, it might be rejected for some bizarre reason, but I will pursue it. I wish it was earlier than, than 10 years now. I think for some reason, I will, I will check this for you and get back, that in BC and Ontario, those timelines don't apply to people who had already committed their offenses and were serving time by the time it changed. So oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think you might. Oh, I think you might be looking pretty good. Oh, excellent! So I'm basically going to steal something out of the system that way, right? <laughs> yeah. I am. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah. I, well, the difficulty with what a lot of people tell me is that if you if you have committed a high profile offense and people will go to the um, the internet, you can't really mm-hmm. get away from it. You can't, and that's one of the reasons why uh, I changed my name. I recently changed my name. It, it was something I was reluctant to do, but it just kept coming up. And and with the Google search results in Canada, I may have mentioned to you earlier that in the, in the Europe in the EU. You can have yourself removed from Google search results. They have a, a law there now called the right to be forgotten. You file official application and the reasoning why. And then so Google search results would not show you. If you type in my name, it wouldn't show in Europe. Whereas in Canada and U.S., we don't have that law. You know, for, I'm sure for the public policy reasons also. But mm-hmm. So uh, if you're somewhat even pro- high profile, you always someone can always find everything they want about you negatively. On, from uh, online very easily and nowadays it's uh, yeah it's extremely hard to escape so so one time uh, when i was looking i was giving a rejected for jobs i said well let me google search myself i actually never wanted to google search myself mm-hmm. because i didn't want to be confronted with my past so i searched myself and then when the results came up i said oh now i know why no one wants to hire me <laughs> i wouldn't hire me either these are all horrible results so uh, it's, it's something that you couldn't get away from it when you keeping my same name yeah, I'd be very curious to know how that how it works in Europe because you sort of get the internet providers sort of suggesting that this can't be done, but obviously it can be done if they can do it in in Europe. No, yeah, they, they, they've done. I know some high profile people have been have themselves removed from Google search results, so it's it's possible. It's just you just have to. It's a it's a filed process, and then you have some certain reasons why. And I think it excludes certain offenses. You know, uh, I think se- certain sexual offenses are excluded from it. But other than that, uh, it uh, seems to be working well. I, I, you know, I hear from other offenders in Europe uh, <laughs> I, I communicate with, and they, they've done it successfully. 
Okay, that's that's good to know. It's probably something we should be pushing for in Canada. Oh, yeah, over here as well. Yeah. yeah most definitely. Yeah, again, there's public policy reasons why people say, well, you know, I should be able to find out if certain offenders on my street. Well, I, I, I would know, argue. I completely agree time. with the certain offenses as well, though. But you know what I mean? Because it's the repetitiveness of... Uh, the offense, like sexual offenses, you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. it's a little bit different than, you know what I mean, stealing something or just material or robbing and, you know what I mean, just, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, are, are, I completely agree even with that. Arguably even a murder. Yeah, yeah even murder, you know what I mean? Murder, like, right? um, uh, but, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, the, the challenge with a, with murder is they, they've got a life sentence anyway, so they're never... That's right. Yeah, they're you're never really going to ask that. Yeah, you know? they're never going to get out. But, uh, you know, uh, manslaughters and stuff like that, everybody should be able to move past a point um, of conviction, right? The people that want to, uh, you know, get their, their, their record expunged or, you know, not found on Google, these are people that are doing this because they want to reintegrate society and not commit crimes. No, of course. The people who are criminally minded, they don't care, right? Yeah, no, they wouldn't no, care. Course. We should always be encouraging as much people as we can to, you know, to, to have something to look forward to because you might not be thinking that way uh, for the first two years of a, uh, of a crime-free cycle after your warrant expiry. And then the third year, you're, you're still going strong and then not knowing and then not even consider it. So even if you aren't, you know, for anybody at this point, if you are listening to the program, know that these are an option and to clear your, to clear your name and get your name not good again, but anybody uh, wanting to uh, or, or thinking just even for a second, you know, should be really considering, you know, I'm um, trying to get their name as clean as possible so that these things don't come back to bite you. Because even if your case is not high profile, I believe it's my opinion that they're, they uh, everybody whose name comes on uh, an application is tested that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, and it, it's, it's pretty clear that it comes up pretty quickly on employment issues and yes. housing issues. Yeah. But it goes well beyond that. Like if you wanted to volunteer with your children's oh, yeah. school yeah. or you mm-hmm. wanted to even get into some seniors' homes, they look for criminal Yeah, the, uh, the effects would could yeah. could and would be, uh, you know, could uh, have, you know, deep impact on, on what you can do socially, you know. So those are also other handcuffs that sometimes we don't see yet or we don't uh, you know even understand because when i was in jail i wasn't thinking you know i'm gonna this is who i was gonna be when i when i get out now that i'm actually right. this person who's changed and embraces the side of the lifestyle it's you know it's you know it's it's a standing that you need you need that standing you need to be able well, to see I, to be seen a certain way in society to be accepted by them and also for them to see who you know who you are and then it, it builds from that so well, if I'm society, I, I would want someone who's committed to reintegrating to be able to get a job, to support themselves, because it saves tax money and everything else, and as opposed to someone living isolated where he thinks, well, I'm now more likely to commit a crime and then fall within the system, have to, you know, whatever it costs in, in prison, maybe $100,000, $200,000 a year. Yeah, That's short, it's so it's short-sighted, yeah. you know. Yes, most oh, definitely. Yeah, there's strong economic and social reasons for wanting people to move past their... Uh, their conviction. Unfortunately, a lot of employers don't see it that way. They just see it that, you know, you might steal, you might, you know, there might be an effect from, you know, uh, you know, there what? might be a liability what? to the, you know, to the, what? you know. I'll tell you a funny story. So when, when I used to apply for jobs and they, they, they confront me with that, that issue, they go, well, you know, you're, you're an ex-con, you're more likely to steal. I would always say, I am less likely to steal anything in your op- than anyone in your office because because I'm the one I'm first dollar, one to go look at. Right. Yeah. If I stole a dollar, I'm going to prison. Whereas yeah. you know, if your if your front desk store is ten thousand dollars, they're probably not going to prison. So yes, you know, I know the consequences. So I'm the safest hire. Yeah. Now it's very rational to say that, but you know, people don't want to be. Sometimes they're not rational. Like, mm-hmm. They're very emotional when it comes to ex-con. Yes.
Yeah, yes. absolutely, absolutely. Well, you seem to have come up with some solutions for yourself in terms of the difficulty in actually getting someone to employ you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your, your documentary and your consulting company? And some yes, please. Sure. I found out that a professor at University of Ottawa named Gary Apollon <laughs> was looking for a subject to build a documentary around uh, white-collar crime and the unintended consequences of it for the, for the offender and to use that within the stat sector of his law school and MBA programs to discourage white-collar crime. So I found that. So I, I approached him. I, I volunteered for it. So we did the Collard documentary, which looked at my life at a central point and looks at who was affected by my, my, my co-accused crime. And so in my case, of course, you know, our family was affected, friends were affected. With my co-accused, he committed suicide. Is uh, the office he worked at? Yeah, you know, the office he worked in Toronto had closed down, so people lost their jobs. So these are all things that, yeah. and, and in my own effect. case, yeah. yeah, ripple effect. And you know, and uh, he, his son lost a father. I have lost access to my my children for a time, and still have lost access to my son. So these are things that if I start when I started, someone said, "Hey, these are possible that might happen, even ten percent chance." I would have said, "No way, I would never even think about doing it." Mm-hmm. So I think that's what the documentary is, and, and we're showing it actually tomorrow in Toronto at the Hot Dog Theater at six thirty, uh, for large, largely for professionals in Toronto. And uh, the reason I, I keep doing it, it's very awkward for me to tell my life story, you know, or see yourself on a screen at your lowest point. And I do it because I want someone who's seen the documentary to think. If you come across a point in their life, maybe five, ten years from now, to think, you know what, I'm going to just pause and, and let my, my normal ethics morality cause me to think, well, maybe it's not worth it. Because I know that if my, in my own case, if, you know, 20 years ago, if, if I'd seen a documentary like that and someone, you know, given very open uh, candor uh, about the, the, what the consequences of it, I would have not uh, gone down that path because it, it's just not worth it. You know, there, was, there was money, but I had a good career. Mm-hmm. So in theory, I would have made a lot of money eventually. And, but I admit, would would have done that without having these horrible consequences that that uh, follow it. Well, that's great that you can uh, you can try to tra- you know what that you're trying to transition that through film now to to, yeah. to people to guide them and to say you know like yeah just you know these are the yeah. these are the these are the red lines beware you know. That's right, and, and so and, and follow your your question, Catherine. So as as for employment, so when I couldn't find employment, I reached out to one person. I said. Can you like refer me to clients? I can do some administrative work. And he referred me to a, a Chinese Canadian business person. And, and this person lives most of the year in China and comes back and forth. And that was my first job as, a, as an ex-con. He hired me to help his family in Canada with any, you know, reading their documents, administrative work. And through that, I've re- received referrals to, in, within the Chinese business, Chinese Canadian business community. I don't know if they don't Google or they don't care because, you know, I'm a, such a good value. Mm-hmm. So I, almost all but one of my clients are Chinese Canadians and they have full disclosure. They know my background and they don't care because I, I, you know, I produce great. work, I have that's good work. Yeah. So, and, and that's, I'm fortunate that way that, the, that, you know, I can only imagine yes. people, other people maybe don't have that option and, and, but they still face the same discrimination I did with, you know, Google results or criminal records, background checks. And what do they do? Mm-hmm. And, and that's why it, I, again, I mentioned earlier, it's so short sighted of society to keep putting that scarlet letter on ex offenders once they've committed to reform, because it, it only hurts them in their process to get back in society and it hurts society because, you know, this person is more likely to get social assistance. They can't get a job or go to prison, which costs, you know, a tremendous amount of money every year. So what services are you providing these clients? It's largely administrative. So I, cause I can't be a lawyer. So I might, uh, you know, interpret a document for them or drafting certain simple things or provide consulting on how, uh, how I would incorporate a corporation and things of that nature. And so that type of work or, you know, simple stuff for, for, for some of them, because again, Chinese Canadians, they, they say, 
just read these just read our mail first like read my read my wife's mail first just to explain if there's any bills come up and then then i take care of it for them so nice. and, oh, and i'm happy to do it yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to do it that, that way and a part of another part of my business is like i actually talk to first-time offenders going into prison so I have a website called callerconsulting.com and lawyers refer their clients to me for you know, usually a two-hour consultation that's built through the law firm where you know, you're dealing with a white-collar guy generally who's, who's petrified of going to prison and I become a sort of an example that you can go to prison and survive. You're not going to die if you follow these certain rules to avoid conflict and, and, not, and whatnot or know the lingo or you know, know what's valuable inside prison and such. And uh, often, I've always, everyone's always very grateful afterwards, even their families, you know, they're, generally they're men, so they're, the wives are very thankful that they're not as worried about their spouse going into mm-hmm. prison. Or, or even in one case, you know, their, their, their son going to prison, because I've explained, you know, it's not going to be easy, but if you do these, these certain things, it's not going to be as hard as you imagine. It's not going to be, you know, the, the TV show Oz or, mm-hmm. or something else that's, that's scary. I find sometimes when people are confronted with prison for the first time, if they haven't had it in their backgrounds at all, like if they hadn't had brothers or uncles or others that mm-hmm. they know who've experienced it, it is a real eye opener. Well, I, I, I'd never, I had never had it in my background. I remember walking in the first day was my son started the dawn jail now closed and I'm walking in and I see these, you know, groups like 50 or 60 men behind a, a, an enclosed area. And it, it looked like a zoo because like it's loud and people are walking around and I walk into the cage. It opens up. They let me in. And if you're in jail, as, as guys have been inside, no, there's nothing to do but you watch the TVs all day. And, and in this case, it was like CP24, which is a new channel. So I apparently had been on the news that, that morning. Oh, so I geez. walked in. Within, within three steps, a guy comes up to my face, literally, you know, two or three inches from my face. He says, you're that fucking lawyer. I'll, I'll be cur- in court. He'll beat this out later. He says, you're that fucking lawyer who did the pyramid scheme. And I said, I'm not a lawyer. And it wasn't a pyramid scheme. That's my first life in, in, in jail. And he goes... <laughs> He goes, I'm going to knock your fucking teeth out right, for calling me a liar. And I go, whoa, no. this, is, this is going to be fun. So I had to deal with that right away. So that was my first, literally my first, you know, 20 seconds in the penitentiary, the jail system. I'm, you know, being having to get my teeth threatened to get knocked out. And so, yeah, if you've never been or you know no experience, it, it's, it's eye-opening in some sense. Like how to use a phone. So, for example, so once I'm in and settled, I want to call my family and say, I'm okay. And all the phones are used except one of them has the phone hanging down. And I think, oh, okay, I'll use that one. No one's on it. So I pick up the phone and I start dialing. And a guy. And now I, I learned later that when the phone is hanging down, that's reserved for the you know the toughest guys in that range. They've reserved that phone, so that's why it's hanging down. No one else can use it. So I start using it like you know, I'm such a gangster or something. And a guy comes over and slaps me right in the face. <laughs> so, so, so so within five minutes, now I have my, my teeth threatened and I got slapped in the face. So I go, this is going to be so wild. <laughs> oh, I felt like I was in a movie scene because all these crazy things are happening within the five minutes. I go, what's going on here? Yeah, there, would, so, yeah. there would be no way to know that from the outside. No. You wouldn't know. No one oh. there should be an orientation program, I would argue, before you go to jail for the first <laughs> probably, time, but there's not. It probably is not in the information that is provided to you from the officials it's, it's in not, jail. I'll tell you another Don Jail story. So I get it. So then now I get my first meal and I eat my meal and it comes with, you know, a plastic spoon, whatever. I eat my meal. So then I throw the thing in the trash. Next morning we have breakfast, which is cereal, and all the guys I see them take out the same plastic spoon from the night before. I didn't know you at the dawn at that time. You had to save your spoon. You only got that one spoon when you came in. So you had these tough guys unwrapping their spoons out of toilet paper in their pocket and eating. So I start eating my cereal with a bent piece of toast. And, <laughs> and so guys are looking at me. So then I, I, a guy says to me, he goes, I will lend you my spoon 
if you clean it afterwards and come to this meeting after breakfast, I go, okay, I need a spoon. So I, I did that deal. And then the meeting was, unfortunately, it was a religious group. It could have been like, you know, a, a gang of some kind. I, I sort of roped in by a spoon. My, so that, that's all within the first day. And these are things I'd never realized would happen. That you have to save your spoon. Who, who even thought about something so insane like that? But it, it was. Jeez, yeah, quite, quite, quite an interesting journey. I, I often find, too, that people who are, you know, coming into the prison and with no previous experience are often some, you know, have some of the most acute observations about what's wrong with it and how it can be improved. That's a very, that's a very good point, Catherine, because, you know, I was sort of anti-trader, so my, you know, my, my job, quote-unquote, was to be very observant, to, to pay attention to things. So when I'm inside, I've noticed a lot of things are flaws in the system, and you're right, there, I think... You know, I would I would say all government officials should at least spend have some purview over the prison system. Should spend a day inside. Just just get in there. You will notice things. You'll say that doesn't work for this reason. You just as I often say, the, the administration of justice in Canada exists for those that are administering it, not for people in it, not for society, not for the victims. Because certain things run, and you go, they're running a certain way that you're going. Who's really benefiting by it? Because it's not the vendors, it's not the victims, it's the people in power that are benefiting mm-hmm. from the way these yeah. things are done incorrectly. I would argue. Most definitely. Yeah, and and change is very uh, very hard to initiate and to motivate uh, within the correction system. That's right. Like, who who are they trying to benefit when they say, "Let's change these things because it would help the offenders inside"? You know, maybe learn to read better or something like that. And as people say, "Well, why? Why do we care? You know, it's working the way it is now. Why should we care? Why should you spend the X dollars more?" And the people on the outside in public say. Yeah, you know, guys inside should suffer. That's a common expression. If you read, like, let's say a newspaper article about a crime, the comment section under, it's always, oh, good. I'm glad the guy's suffering. I'm glad it's horrible. I'm glad he got beaten up in prison or whatever else. Yeah, it, that sentiment is often is Yeah, often not, not, not realizing what, what you're asking to come back to society. If you don't help anybody, if you don't help anybody who's affected by a situation or circumstance, you're really endangering everybody else around you because you're, you're not uh, assisting in the, you know, the nourishment of building somebody into society, you know, it's just disgusting. That's true. That's true. Like right now I'm involved with a charity called Restorative Justice Housing Ontario. So I'm I'm a program director. I work part-time for them and we help ex-offenders find homes to live after they're, 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 they're finished their warrant expiry mm-hmm. generally, and they want to stay a place where they, they couldn't afford otherwise or because of their criminal record. Now, all the people I've met on the board are, are people that, that see things as you do, that they, they say, why are we you know, continuing to punish people after they, they, they leave mm-hmm. prison? So they're very earnest. They want to help people get, get, you know, get, build their lives back in, not just for that person, which you would argue is something you should do, but also for society as a yeah, whole. Yeah, as a yeah, whole. So, uh, you know, it's a ripple I, effect. Just, like you, just, just like, like you did your crime, the ripple effect of someone else changing back into who they were supposed to be in the first place, it, it's astronomical. Right. That, that's that's right. And again, it benefits us all. Like it doesn't mm. benefit us all to keep punishing a person after a sentence, or to to make prison so brutal that the person thinks the society that is treating me so cruel right now, I have no respect for it. So when they get out, they say, "Well, I don't care about society at all." Because when I was in prison, I was helpless. I was abused. I was you know treated horribly or whatnot. So yeah, it's short sighted. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I really do think you have to model a just uh, and law abiding. Um, model when people are in prison. Otherwise, you're gonna they're gonna you know adopt the lesson that the survival of the fittest and the strongest guy wins, and it's not not the way it should be. You know, so like, I, I don't think guys who've been inside wanted to be comfortable. Like, I, I would say prison shouldn't be comfortable. It should be un- unpleasant. Fact that you're taken away from society, and 
you're in a, a you know not a pleasant place. But there's a line between not pleasant and cruel or you know dehumanizing, mm-hmm. which I've seen. I, mm-hmm. I've seen that, and it doesn't serve anyone. Like I, I kept my senses, and I, I don't think I changed much who I was, you know, as a person. But I could see a lot of guys being pushed over the edge that they may come out of prison much more violent or much more angry than they went when they went yeah. in. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of them experience a lot of trauma while they're in there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> I have some more stories perhaps for another time, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's you see horrible things, the inhumanity, man's inhumanity to man. And much of it is entirely preventable, but just the system allows it because of mistakes or, or whatnot. Yeah. It's, uh, it's challenging. I think we have a long, Long road to hoe, road to hoe, in order to try and repair some of that um, inhumanity that happens within. Well, the uh, if I if I had like you know someone in government had my uh, had their ear, I would say let's do some pilot projects. Let's pick a, a province and say let's do things. This province are doing things a little differently. And then after a few years, you say what's the recidivism rates in this province? What's the prison violent rate in this province? What's the you know the net cost of doing it this better way or different way? And then model that across the country because right now. We're just doing things, and it's not working. I don't think anyone's arguing that it's working in any way, but we just keep going on because that's the way we've always done it. Yeah, I noticed the recent Correctional Investigators report is really critical of CSC for not improving and not making changes despite you know consistent findings that there are problems. You know, I guess you'd have to tie, tie, uh, tie some incentives to making these changes. I always said that if I ran the prison, you know, control the prison system, let's tie some of the pay of the people in the system, the administrators, to the, how, how often someone commits a crime after release. Because a society is paying for prison not just to lock someone up, but to hopefully yeah, you know, mold them or shape them in a way. Co- yeah, corrective, corrective that's right. Yeah. That's right, corrective. So if, if they're mm. feeling the product they're producing, why are they being paid exactly the same way? You know? Yeah. I, w- I would, you know, so I know it's hard to do, but I'd say, okay, then you get a bonus if you release, you know, 10 guys and none of them commit a crime in the next five years. That's a bonus for you. You just incentivize that fact that so they have some skin in the game to make things better for everyone. Yeah, I think there's a lot to this. I, I've been um, contacted by a conservative backbencher who wants to introduce a private member's bill, which would require the Minister of Public Safety to come up with a framework to improve recidivism that would include mm-hmm. you know, pilot projects and different approaches, studying international success stories and bringing them to Canada. And Forward my name to that person. I'll talk I will, to them. I will, yeah. Please. I think that would be I think that would be great. And now's the time, like if you can if you can work with the minority government, try and get the other mm-hmm. parties to support, you know, this might this might actually go. So that would be great. And, and again, I don't know how anyone could argue against the need for changes that will result in less crime in the future and less expenses. The only other side is, you know, let's increase the cruelty for some, you know, un- unmeasurable reason why we're doing that. It makes no sense. Yeah, and you know, the evidence is pretty clear that that doesn't work. Corporal punishment, all of that harsh treatment, you know, excessive administrative segregation or solitary confinement just makes things worse. Uh, yeah, when, when you mentioned solitary, I was in sol- uh, sort of an involuntary solitary because our, our prison, I was in Millhaven at that time, it was locked down because of a riot in the yard. Someone had been stabbed. So I was alone in my cell for five days. Wow. And it is mentally, it changes you. Like you could explain, I explained to people afterwards, they go, things started moving in the cell. Yeah. And, or yeah. I, beca- and I became more aggressive. I, I'm alone, but I started yelling at people through the crack of my door. And the guys are yelling back and forth. So people are getting... They become more aggressive, even though they're not interacting with anybody. It was just quite bizarre. So whenever I read articles now about solitary, how bad it is, I say, I always say, yes, it is, 100%. It's worse than you can imagine. Yeah, it really is. It's bad. Yeah. Well, hopefully we're making some progress on that front. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. 
Hopefully. Would you have any advice to others who are coming out and facing these employment challenges? Um, I would say uh, be creative in your approach. So, uh, because you're going to face obstacles that are unfair, you're going to face discrimination that that is unwarranted, and you've got to keep stay positive, be committed to your a long term goal, which is to reinvent society as you know a positive person. So, never lose that spirit because. You know, as I said, in my own case, people can insult me. They can denigrate me from my past, but they can't change who I believe I am right now. That's my choice I've made. So I would tell people the same way. Don't lose who you want to be, no matter what you're facing. Thank you very much, Joseph. I really appreciate you sharing your insights, and yes, hopefully we'll, we'll touch base again. Thank you. I, I enjoy it, and uh, good luck with your project here. Thank you so much. We will be bringing you another episode of Voices Inside and Out. If you would like to comment on our show and or contribute to the show personally to keep this pilot project going, please send your donations to the John Howard Society of Canada marked Voices Inside and Out.